Also, in the new building that we're moving to at the end of the year, uh, we have air conditioning but almost no parking. Now here we have tons of parking but no air conditioning, so it's horrible. But because we know today is, is hot and I already feel it as well, we have some popsicles for you. So, so if you want one, raise your hand. If you don't, leave your hand down. But if you want one, they're going to bring you a popsicle. Yeah, the, the, sugar, the sugar will help keep you awake for five minutes and then you'll fall asleep. It's my gift to you. You're welcome. So next week, we are doing this work day at the other property. I just lost you all. Sugar. Squirrel. Got it. Uh, so next day, we are doing next week are doing this work day over at the other property. Uh, and basically, whenever your service you attend gets out, there will be people there. So you can just go out, go over and show up. Uh, we are going to just make some hot dogs because we don't know how many people are going to show up. You can sign up in the back if you have certain tools and stuff. Uh, but let's see. So equipment that if you have, you can bring with you are gloves, eye ear protection, trash bags, cleaning supplies, any tools you have that you think might help, like shovels, hose, rakes, wheelbarrows, but you should probably put your name on it with a phone number. Or like everything else around here, it gets left here, and then it goes in the lost and found, and then we give it away, and two years later, somebody goes, do you have this? I left it here last week. And it's like it's two years ago. Anyway, so... Put your name on it. Not that I'm saying you got... Well, whatever I am saying that. But it's okay. Uh, so some things we're going to do. We're going to tear up some old carpet. We're going to clean some kids' rooms. We're going to move some ice plant, do some weeding. Uh, oh, sounds like so much fun, right? It's like, oh, what I want to do on my weekend. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to do a retaining wall project, uh, prep for some exterior painting. We're going to construct a wall in the kids' room. We're going to pick up some trash, uh, do some landfill runs. So if you have a dump trailer, and I don't mean one of those where it's like you got to go click, and you get like 10 guys to go... But if you have one that's all, and it goes, that's what I'm talking about. Like if you ever go to the dump and you're sitting there like taking all of your garbage out of the back of your car going, this is horrible. And some guy pulls up, and you're like, I hate that guy. We want to be that guy. Okay. So if you have a dump trailer, we could probably use that. Probably need about three or four for some of the trash runs. And if you have a dump trailer and live in Santa Maria and have one of those free dump passes that you want to give to us, you got to go with us, by the way. You got to, or you just give us your driver's license. Apparently, we can take that. Yeah. Well, you have one. You have a pass. What are you raising your hand for? You got a pass. You live in Orchid. You don't have a dump pass. How do you get a dump pass? Oh, your mom's. My mom has a dump pass too. Anyway, so if you have one, bring it. Uh, we got a lot of work to do next week, so show up anytime after the services are over, up to probably about four o'clock. We'll be doing some work over there. You guys said you want to get involved and do stuff. Don't let me down. Or just show up and play in the dirt, whatever, like other people do. So I think that's what I got. Popsicles, work day, what to bring, blah, 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 words. Okay, so if you're new to Element, welcome. That's how we do things, popsicles and stuff. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. Oh, i got to stay inside. What is that? Ah, they're changing it on me. There's some uh, notes and some questions to go deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called YouVersion. Uh, click on More and then Events in YouVersion. will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And it says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All right, let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would uh, teach us what it means to trust you. 
uh, to understand that everything that comes into our lives has been sifted through your hands and that you are good and you are trustworthy. And we would understand that faith is more than feelings. Faith is understanding that you have done something in history to bring redemption and salvation to your people. And we would trust in that of what you have done and what you continue to do. And that we would honor you with our lives that you would gain great glory as we live in the good that you provide. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so today we are starting a new series. It's really one I've wanted to do for a while. Never really know kind of where, where to put it, but this has been a really weird year for us. I'm going to build, not going to build, where it's going to... And so in the middle of this, great, we'll just throw this series in the middle of this. We're going to do the Old Testament book of Ruth. Uh, this is where you kind of get some of the decorations that are in here. I, I got to tell you, I hung all the umbrellas, the parasols, in the room out here, so don't look up, okay? Uh, if it... And you look up. Okay, don't look up because... Just in case they fall, okay? I don't want them to go smack. In first service, I was talking about this, and we had these parasols here stuck to the windows, and I said, and I hung them, and it went boom, and one of them fell right then. Everybody thought it was very funny. I didn't hang the ones on the stage. And then right after the first song and the first service, another one fell and hit me. And then another one fell over here. So basically five of them fell, so we took the sixth one off and just laid him about the stage. But anyway, it's very girly. I know, but hey, it's, the, you know, it's Ruth. There it is. Uh, Ruth uh, comes right after the book of Judges. It's right before 1 Samuel. On my notes, I wrote this. It's like a baby quietly nestled between two juggernauts. Sometimes I think I'm, I'm very creative and nobody else does, so what, whatever. Uh, some, some people have been like, oh, I'm really excited for Ruth. It's going to be so great. Guys... I don't know if I can live up to your expectation, okay? So just lower it just a little and see if we can get somewhere near it. I think Ruth is a great book to cover for us right now because it's all about providence and redemption. And where we keep thinking God is sent, God keeps moving us into different places as a church. And so it's all about what God wants to do. We think it's got to be, and God's like, no, no, this is what we're going to do. And so we always want to follow what he is doing. And really, all of the Bible is about God's providence and redemption. All of it. It's one of the reasons why we're calling this series the story within the story. Because our stories of our lives are only going to make sense in the larger narrative of God's story over us. And providence really simply means God's care and guidance over his creation, but when it comes to our lives, it's an understanding that he knows all that's been done to us and all that we have done, and eventually God can make things work out for his glory and our joy. Sometimes people like to look around the world and they say things, well, if God is so good, why did God allow that to happen? And that can be defined in a million different places in a million different ways throughout our world today. But sometimes when we say that, what we're doing is we're making it really about ourselves. We're saying, this made me feel this way, and therefore it can't be okay. How can God do anything with this? And the truth is that we have to stop being so self-centered in our lives and look toward God's larger narrative of what God can and do. Because providence states that God can can turn any tragedy into eventual praise. He can turn every single one of our wrong turns into a direction that grows us. He can bring redemption to all things. And again, it comes down to us stopping worshiping our own lives, our own intellect, uh, other people around us, and pulling our heads out of where we have placed it and simply acknowledging God as God. I think this is nowhere better seen than in the life of a guy in the Old Testament named Joseph. Joseph comes up in the book of Genesis. He is a cocky teenager whose dad dotes on him and treats him as his favorite, and all of his brothers around him hate him because his dad treats him as the favorite. And this still happens today. 
when, when a parent treats one of their kids as a favorite, the kids don't get mad at the parents. They get mad at the kid who's being doted on. If you have a job and you work at a place and you have a boss who dotes on one employee all the time, everybody's mad at that employee and not the boss showing the favoritism. It's called transference. It's dumb, but we still all do it. And so his brothers decide, well, we're just going to kill Joseph to get rid of this because of the jealousy. And at the last moment, they decide, wait, wait. Let's not really do that. Let's not, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery because at least we can make some money and then maybe somebody else will kill him and then it's taken care of anyway and we walk off with some cash. Now, these are bad things. If it happened to us, all of us would say, God, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Why did God let that happen? Joseph, as a slave, grows up into a man. He works hard. He works well, even as a slave. Genesis 39, verse 2, the text reminds you that God was with Joseph even in that situation. And so Joseph, his life becomes a pattern for us because he works hard and well. Joseph is not sinless. Joseph is not perfect, but he tries to obey God. He tries to listen. He tries to see where God is leading him. And because of this, Joseph ends up in the house of his master, the guy that bought him, but he ends up in the house. Most slaves lived and worked in the field. Joseph gets to work in the house, so it shows that he's trustworthy because his owner wants to use him more. And this is a good word for people who work and have jobs. You might say, I have a bad job. I would say, no, slavery is a bad job. Okay, that's a bad job. Uh, do you get raises? No, you don't get paid. What if I want to quit? You don't get to quit. You know, they're in Egypt. So, hey, what, what's my health care? Is there pharaoh care? What, how does that work? You know, well, your health care is you get sick, they beat you with a stick till you die and bury you. That's, that's your health care, so, so you're welcome. That's just it. Because I know your job stinks, okay? No, no one gets paid to sit around and sleep and eat Cheetos all day because you do that for free. They pay you at a job so that you would actually do it. That's why they give you money, so you would go there and actually do your job. But while you're there, even at a job you hate, you work hard, you work well, you work honorably. You don't call in sick all the time. You don't steal all the post-its, right? You work hard and you work well. And so Joseph is a guy, though he's a slave, he still works honorably and he works hard. Though he may never have kids of his own, though he may never own his own home, he works hard. Some people have looked at Joseph moving into the house of his master and they say, oh, look, things are looking up for him. No, he's still a slave. It's still bad. But still on the other side of this, there's something that's even worse. And that is that Joseph is probably the best looking guy in the Bible. And it's weird for me to say that, I know. But the way the scriptures talk about him and the things that it says, he is probably the best-looking dude in the entire Bible. That is not always a benefit. Because here, his master's wife says, Oh, well, you're really good-looking. You're going to have sex with me. And I know some of you dudes, this is your dream, right? It's like, oh, I'll be a slave to some some hot lady with a lot of money. That'll be awesome. Not for Joseph, okay? Because Joseph loves God. You need a new dream, okay? Joseph loves God. And so she says, hey, baby, you're going to sleep with me. As slaves, you don't get to say no. And so what Joseph does is he says, no. And what she does, she goes, well, fine. She screams rape. He just raped me. And so Joseph gets thrown into jail. And this isn't like Orange is a New Black Prison or Martha Stewart's Cupcake Camp. You know, this is like big boy prison. You don't drop the soap in the big boy prison. That's what this is like. Okay, so you get, you got to have this in your mind. This is a terrible situation. All of us would look like if it happened to us, we would say, God, I did the right thing. Why did you send me to big boy prison? Why is this happening to me? Or we would start saying things like, God must not exist because this happened in my life. And then we'll write blogs about how God doesn't exist, but how we're still really mad at him, which is very incongruous, and people do it all the time. It's weird. 
And so, so Joseph ends up in prison. What does he do in prison? He works hard. He works well. I am sure he had dark nights of the soul where he thought, why am I here? What's going on? But even in the midst of that, he didn't get all caught up in himself. He started looking at things around him, how he could help. While in jail, they actually give him the keys to the prison. You know you're a trustworthy guy when you're locked up in jail and they give you the keys. And you're not like, see ya, I'm good looking, I'll take off. You know, he doesn't do that. He stays and he actually starts to help other prisoners. At one point, this guy shows up who is very close to Pharaoh, the ruler of the country, and Joseph helps him. And the guy's like, oh, this is great, I'm going to remember you. But the guy gets out of jail and doesn't remember Joseph. Leaves Joseph in jail for another seven years. And eventually something happens with Pharaoh, and this guy says, oh, I know a guy who can help. I remember now. And then they go, and they grab Joseph and bring him out. Joseph gets connected to Pharaoh. He rises up really high, and he saves not only Egypt, but his own family as well. Sold into slavery, spends up into the middle part of his 30s in jail, will be a slave the rest of his life, though he will have some power. And God does it all using people's sin and horrible decisions to bring about his own purposes so people could be saved. That is the meaning behind the verse that I had you stand for at the very beginning, Genesis 50, 20, when his brothers are reconciled to him and they think Joseph is going to kill them and instead he forgives them. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That is providence. That is providence, that it all rests in God's hands. And that's the story of Joseph, and that's also the story of the book of Ruth. So if you want to, you can open your Bibles to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. I'm going to give you one whole verse today. Wow, we're blazing the trail. I know, one whole verse, but I need to start here so you can have that in the back of your mind so you know where we are going. All right, this is Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So this is the time of the judges. If you don't know, the time of the judges it has political and social and spiritual unrest. We in America would know nothing about that. Yeah, okay. So Israel at this time does not have a king, a human king. God is supposed to be king, but nobody listens to, nobody follows him. And this is going to kind of be the precursor to start to set up the human king that's going to come in Israel. It's very important how this begins to work out. Now, if you look back to the book of Judges, if you don't have like a big intro to the book of Ruth, and you can see Judges, the last uh, verse in the book of Judges there says this, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then it goes right into the beginning of Ruth. It's supposed to go back to back to walk you right in. And what happens in the first verse of Ruth is this guy leaves his country to go to this place called Moab. And what you see is that Israel at this time is just like the United States. We keep making bad decisions over and over and over. And the only reason that they are saved is God keeps coming in and doing something new. He keeps rescuing them over and over and over. And so Ruth, it starts at a very low point. So it's a really, really low point. And you probably don't notice how low, but there's a famine in the land like it starts with. And they live in the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. We'll talk about this next week a little bit more, but it's like they're living in Iowa and there's no corn. Or you're living in Idaho and there's no potatoes. Or you're living in Florida and there's no oranges. Like, it's a bad situation. So the famine is meant to show God's disapproval of how the people of Israel are acting. 
The guy, you'll get his name next week, actually, it tells you that he takes his family to this area called Moab. That is a big taboo for Israelites. You do not go to Moab. And what it tells you is he is more concerned about his own well-being than about his personal holiness. But the story in the end is going to be about God's providence and God's grace and bringing this guy and his, or bringing this guy's family back into what God means to be, that God can take sin and God can use it for his own glory. Now, why is Moab such a taboo? Well, you have to understand the story of the Moabites. It's found in Genesis 19, if you want to open your Bibles there. And we touched on this four months ago in the What in the World series. And you guys said things like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. And then you said, I can't believe Aaron talked about it. So strap on your big boy pants because we're going to talk about it again. I'll make it a little shorter than last time. You're welcome. But this is a little PG-13. So uh, essentially, you have a guy named Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch of the Hebrews. And Abraham, God shows up and he says, Abraham, follow me. We're going to go into a new land. Abraham says, oh, great, let's go. Abraham's nephew Lot follows Abraham. And Lot is always a lot of trouble, just like his name. And so as they start going along, Abraham accumulates all these things. And because he is generous, he shares with Lot. And eventually Abraham and Lot have so many herds, they can't pasture them together. And so Abraham says to Lot, hey, why don't you pick a direction you would like to go and I'll go the other way. You get to choose first. Again, still serving his nephew, Lot, who's a lot of trouble. And Lot looks out and sees the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you ever heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you're meant to read the Bible and go, oh, dun, 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 right? He's like, that looks fun. That looks lucrative. I'll go there. And so Lot heads off that direction. Eventually, God's going to bring a judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah because, and their lifestyles because they fail to honor the image of God in people. And the way that they do that is they have forced rape on people. They try to belittle people. They're very hostile to anybody. And so God says, I'm going to do something about this. Lot moves into this city. Lot becomes part of the leadership of this city. It's an issue. So what God does before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah is he sends two angels into the city as witnesses because in an ancient court, you needed two witnesses to, to bring any type of verdict of judgment. So God's, it shows that God is not hot-headed. He doesn't fly out the handle. God actually sends two witnesses in. And so they go in. They meet Lot. Lot says, please come stay at my house. You don't want to hang out in the, in the public square because bad things happen there. And eventually, this judgment starts coming on the city of Sodom. And these angels have to drag Lot out of the city to save his life. Lot's wife looks back in longing. She dies. They run to this other little city called Zoar to try and get away. In Genesis 19.30, it says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. This kind of relates to the beginning of Ruth. Why does he go and live in a cave? Why does Lot live in a cave? Because he's afraid. Why does the guy from Bethlehem go move to Moab? Because he's afraid. He's afraid there's a famine. I not, he may not be able to survive. I gotta, there's some similarities in these stories. Now, Lot, you're not actually told exactly why Lot ran out of the city of Zoar. It's probably because he's the one guy that survived from Sodom, and they probably thought that God was trying to take him out, and if he's living in their town, well, God's going to take their town out to get to this guy, so that you better leave. So Lot kind of runs away. Lot moves to a sinful place because he thought it would be lucrative and fun. That's the idea behind this. But now he lives in a cave because he's afraid. And I asked you this four months ago. If you're a family, a good question to ask yourself is, where will you live? How will your family live in that place? Who will they connect themselves to? A lot of people pick a place because it looks fun and lucrative. 
and not necessarily all the things that go into it. Sometimes people move somewhere because they're afraid, like the people in Ruth. Sometimes when you move somewhere, the cost is going to be too high. So where will you raise your family? Lot could have done better if he would have evangelized and talked about God to some people, but he doesn't. And not even his own family gets saved. And so when Lot is leaving Sodom, the angels say, you need to go to the mountains because Abraham lives in the mountains. But he goes, I'm not going to go to the mountains. He wants to go somewhere else. Lot didn't fellowship with believers that caused devastation in his life. This has ramifications all the way into the book of Ruth, all the way into Jesus' life itself. He goes from Sodom to Zoar to a cave with no fellowship. It matters where you live. It matters what church you attend. And so he's living in a cave with his kids like the grizzly man. Verse 31, it says, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. So they're talking about sex and making babies, not marriage. Why are they like this? Because they grew up in a corrupted society where their dad did nothing to promote a healthy sexual identity in his little girls. He wanted to be their buddy and not their parent. Right before this section you read in the scriptures where this mob shows up to try and rape these angels in Lot's house, Lot says, wait, don't rape them. Take my daughters instead. Like, how is that any better? This is not a dad who values his daughters or holds them in high esteem. These women also had fiancés in this city, part of the rape group. But the girls, they're also not just victims in this. They make their own decisions. But like I told you in the What in the World series, Lot is held majorly responsible because his name is in the text and there's aren't. Lot was a dad that needed to create a world where his little girls could be raised, where they'd be safe, where they would know what the truth was, because that's important to God. That's very important to him. Your kids live in the world that you will make. And we live in a world world today where we think honoring kids' decisions means letting them do whatever they want. That's not how it works. You can't do that. You can't do that because your kids, when they're little, will find a way under the sink and make a Drano cocktail and drink it. You, not everything they want to do is good. You have to tell them no. Like here, verse 32, she says, Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Lucas von Leyden in the 1500s actually drew a painting of what he thought this looked like. This is the painting. That there's all this destruction going on around them, and Lot is so self-focused, he doesn't even see it. He thinks it's more important to be drinking with his little girls. So Lot is responsible for this. Mary's an unbeliever, lives in a godless town, got rid of all fellowship with believers, and he gets drunk with his little girls. Men, I tell you this all the time, if you don't get your head straight about the sanctity of women, it will corrupt your relating to the opposite sex, it will corrupt your raising of a daughter, and it will corrupt your daughter's self-image. You must get your head on straight. Verse 34, the next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father, let us make him drink wine tonight also. So they live in a cave, but they brought the liquor cabinet, hashtag priorities, right? You probably know somebody like this, like they don't even got a couch to sleep on, but they got booze. Yeah, that's this family right here. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And, when, and he did not know when she lay down or when she, or when she arose. This is another one of those cases in the Bible you don't do what's actually written there. Okay, this is there so you see what happened, not what you should do. Uh, the Bible speaks of this as deplorable. You're supposed to be horrified by what you read so that you would not do this sort of thing. 
And it's a little bit like our society where Lot's daughters, again, disconnected marriage, sex, and children. This is the result, verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. One of the last portraits you see in the book of Genesis of Lot is him holding his son slash grandson. So he is grandpa dad. He's the guy. The firstborn, the firstborn bore a son and called his name what? Moab. Moab. He is the father of the what? Moabites. The Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, we are talking about the book of Ruth, but you have to understand this story is there to get you to wake up to see what the background of this is. If we don't want to be a people who things like this end up happening to, we must see our lives differently. The place in the where the guy in Ruth 1 takes his family to is the land of the Moabites. The Israelites despise the Moabites. Throughout the course of Israelite history, the Moabites try to destroy the Israelites multiple times. The Israelites are at war with them all the time. The Moabite, Moab is not a place you would go if you are an Israelite. You would be an outcast. If you are a Moabite you go into the land of Israel, you would also be an outcast. Ruth, the person who this book is named after, is a Moabite. And she will end up living in Israelite culture most of the time as an outcast. But you will see eventually Israel's greatest king, David, come out of the culmination of the book of Ruth. Jesus' own lineage will trace here. A lot of scholars today, that they believe that Samuel actually wrote the book of Ruth. And he wrote it because there's this whole controversy that arose of David being king in the land. And they said he's unqualified because of his ancestry. And Samuel uses the book to show, no, no, the exclusion referred to males, not females. And so it's kind of a weird thing, but it's a feminist book. There you go, right? Um, this is the background of the book of Ruth. This is the background. Ruth is a Moabite. She's undesirable. She is outcast. Someone whose family you would look at and you would not bite them over for a barbecue at your house because you were afraid if you didn't watch them, they'd steal something. Like your wife's earrings go missing. You're like, oh, I knew we shouldn't have had those Moabites. They stole my wife's earrings. That's, that's the idea behind who these people are. This is their parentage. This is their ancestry. And, I, and I'm going to take a little kind of a left turn with you but kind of bring this all together for you. Maybe you and your life Maybe you've had a crazy life, right? Maybe, maybe you see yourself as like the Moabites, or maybe you have a friend that's like that, or something that's happened to you. How can God bring any redemption out of this? How can God bring any providence to this situation? How can God bring hope to exactly where you are? Well, as Lot is fleeing Sodom, after the destruction, before the incest, his wife stops and she looks back in longing. And the text tells you, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Meaning she was probably hit with like some flaming slab of road tar out of heaven and it fossilized her and the ground around her in an instant. The Roman uh, Jewish uh, historian Josephus, he said that he actually saw the fossilized remains of her. Now the Bible never mentions Lot's wife by name, but the rabbis refer to her as Idit. Idit means witness, that she was a witness to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And rabbis teach that what happened to her happened because her actions were no different than the rest of the town of Sodom. Uh, that she believed that something should happen to these strangers in her house that Lot had brought inside. Genesis 19 specifically says they were actually guests of Lot. There's a rabbinical commentary, and it's called Midrash, and it says that she tried to bar their entry to her home. This is what it says. Lot wanted the members of his household to participate in the meritorious act of hospitality, as had Abraham, and he asked his wife to bring them salt. She responded, do you even wish to learn this bad habit from Abraham? And the story goes that she complies, but she goes around to everybody in town. She says, oh, I need salt. We got these guests. Oh, you need to come and do something about this. They're, they're horrible. They don't respect our ways. And so she stirs up the entire town. 
that the whole reason why this whole thing happened was because of Lot's wife. The rabbis teach that she sinned in salt, that her story begins and it ends with salt, where she becomes this pillar of salt. And throughout the scriptures, salt has a really interesting things as, as you go throughout. I mean, because we're called to be salt and light to the world. It means we're supposed to also be a witness to who God is and be flavorful. Lot's wife turning into salt before this incident, the rabbis look at this and they say, what God wants people to do is see this is a witness. Your life doesn't have to be the way it used to be. This is a witness to the destruction and that you can see that if you go another way, you don't have to keep going the way that was. Lot didn't listen to the witness. Lot kept going the exact same direction, and it brought devastation. In the book of 2 Kings, there's another story about salt. The prophet Elijah goes in. There's this town. There's a water. There's water in the town. It's bad. You can't grow crops. Women are miscarrying when they, when they drink this water. God's prophet shows up, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 20. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word of Elisha the prophet. That's a standalone story in 2 Kings, but there's this whole thing that goes with everything else that comes before it. Here's a problem. We have these issues. Can you do something about it? Fine. Give me some salt. Boom. Everything's better now. Ruth is a story of how the prophet Samuel is metaphorically going to throw salt on King David and Ruth and the Moabites to say, look, there's all this animosity. It can be done now. It can be done now. Now, when we read things like this, we kind of step back and go, I don't understand why this stuff is in the Bible. I don't know why Aaron's talking about this. None of this makes any sense because we are sophisticated moderns, right? We got cars and computers and iDevices and the internet, and we see ourselves as being so smart. And when we read something in the scriptures we don't understand, we think, well, those are stupid country bumpkins. They don't know anything, and we just try and move on. You have to see it how they saw it, how they understood it, so it starts to bring some clarity into our lives. In the consciousness of the mindset of the people at Elisha's time, there's all all this idea of this history of curses and all these things that are happening, they've carried with them these stories of Joshua and Jericho and Moabites and Ammonites and blessings and curses and Sodom and Lot and pillars of salt. And the favor of God is all swirling around in this country and all these stories. You ever get a new job? You go into a place and you talk to people for a while and you're like, man, there's just a weird vibe here. And you finally ask somebody, what's going on? They go, oh, and they tell you this whole story about the place. And you're like, oh, well, that makes a lot more sense. Or maybe you go to a family reunion. You've never been to one. And you show up and like half the family sits here and a third sits here and a couple people sit over here. And you're like, what is up with that? And someone goes, oh, well, one time. Da, da, da. And they tell you this whole story. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's messed up. Right? But, but you get the story and it starts to make just a little more sense. This country has a history. This happened, and this happened, and this happened, and Elisha comes, and he's told, oh, the water is bad, the land's unfruitful. goes back to cursings out of Deuteronomy, and Elisha says, well, bring me a new bowl. Bring me a new bowl. The word new, it's this word, chadesh. And it doesn't necessarily mean it was just made. New means renewed. You see it in a reference to a renewed kingdom, a renewed spirit, renewed life. It can be rebuild like a city or a kingdom. It can mean repair. It can mean new songs and new mercies and new covenants. So it's not just a brand new bowl. This is a chadesh bowl. He says, put salt in it. So they brought him salt. Again, salt is found all throughout the scriptures. Sometimes it's witness of judgment, like in Genesis 19 or Judges 9 or Jeremiah 48. But it also has positive connotations in Matthew 5 and Mark 9, Leviticus 2. It's supposed to be part of the sacrificial system. 
Leviticus 2.13 says, You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Salt becomes connected with covenant. Like why? What does it even mean? What's the covenant? As easily as I can explain this to you in our vernacular today, covenant is this idea that no matter where you find yourself, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what has been done to you or you've done to somebody else, no matter how hard your heart has been, you can always return to God. He has provided and paved the way to call you and bring you home. No matter how bad you screwed up, no matter how many destructive ways you've been involved in, no matter how many false gods you have worshipped, no matter how bad of a father or a mother you might have been, you can return. God has made the way. He is calling you and drawing you to himself. He will restore you. The salt in the covenant was meant to represent a brand new start that we can actually be witnesses to what God has done, that we can be flavorful to what God is doing, an everlasting covenant. Verse 22 says, so the water has been healed to this day. Here's a picture. This is that spring. You can actually go there and visit that spring and still drink the water out of it because it has been healed even to this day today. It's like Elisha shows up, he throws water in the spring, he goes, it's done. It's a symbol that, that it's all okay. Ruth, at the outset of the book, you have to understand where the book is going is it's going to healing and hope and redemption and God's providential hand in all things. I think in regard to our lives where you start this book is you have to understand that your history doesn't decide the rest of your life. It only describes where you've been. For Ruth, for Elijah, for, I'd say, Lot and even his daughters, and into our lives, the past doesn't have to decide your present or your future. What happened doesn't have to decide what will happen. Your history describes where you've been and who you've been with and who you've been involved with. It describes all those things, but it doesn't decide. It doesn't decide your present or your future. Too many people let their past decide the rest of their lives. It's not set. With, all, with Jesus, all things can be new and renewed. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of it. Providence and redemption. Elisha doesn't show up and say, oh, tell me about all your disobedience. Tell me about all of your sins. He shows up and he goes, give me some salt. Done. Let's move on. Let's move on. Which also shows that curses are made to be broken. To be broken. God wants to break the chains that have held you in your sin. You might think your situation, whatever it is, or maybe you have a friend who's in a horrible situation, you think, oh, it's got to be hopeless. No, no. A Moabite situation was seen as being hopeless. It's that God's new words can always be spoken. We, as modern people, look at the scriptures and we just sometimes write it off. Like, like it doesn't make it, it makes total sense. See if this sounds familiar to you and how we're the exact same way. I just can't get a break. You ever say that? How about this? Uh, this thing always happens to me. How about this is like I expected anything else. Oh, it's inevitable. It always happens. You ever say things like that? How about something like this? It's just my luck. Oh, really? You have luck and it's just yours? Did you buy it somewhere? Did you keep the receipt since you seemed to lost it? I mean, what does that mean? How is anything inevitable? How is something always happen? It doesn't. It doesn't. It's because we have taken bits and pieces of the story of our lives and knitted together in such a way that we get the outcome that we so desire so we can act and react the way that we do. What we have to understand is that in the whole idea of redemption is it is God's story. We stop taking bits and pieces of the story and we only understand our story in the midst of what God is doing in his story. God wants us to renew our minds to understand who he is. He wants to take us and do that for us. 
This is one of the big deals behind redemption groups. It's understanding our lives in the midst of God's story over us. That we stop taking the bits and pieces and trying to re-narrate our life into this thing that says, oh, it always happens. And simply taking a step back and saying, if God's involved, that means something beautiful can come out on the backside of the mess that I made. That's the beauty of the scriptures. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. I think really the question for us is going to come down to, who is your God? Who is your God? The dad in the book of Ruth starts off, he's an Israelite, but he wasn't really a believer in Israel's God. But God will still use his sin and the things that he did to bring about his purposes, which means Jesus can really bring hope to any situation, even yours. Whatever it is. It means that the gospel is true and all things rest in God's providential hand and that the book of Ruth is kind of this idea where God is taking and sprinkling salt upon Ruth and the Israelites and the Moabites and bringing things back together again. But it's also the idea that God is still taking and he's sprinkling salt upon us. And he's saying your past doesn't have to decide the rest of your life. It's done. It's done. You can trust me and we can move forward and we can bring hope and redemption to all things because it's what God does in our lives. It's his story. We have to be a people who stop taking bits and pieces and narrating our life together so it gets the horrible outcome that we have. When you step back and say, yes, I made bad decisions, but God is a God of providence and hope and he can come in and narrate that story so in the end it brings about good. And this long talk after last service with this guy who came up and started asking me all these questions about it. And, and guys, sometimes it, it takes a while to get to the understanding, to see what God's really doing. I mean, th- again, think about Joseph. You know, probably gets sold into slavery at 12 or 13 years old, comes out of jail in his 30s. We, we in our country, we watch sitcoms that are 22 minutes long, if you have Hulu and don't actually watch it on TV, um, it's like 22 minutes long, and, and at the end of it, everything works out. So we think, well, why doesn't it work out? I throw a microwave in the popcorn for three minutes, and I have popcorn. You know, everything's supposed to be fast. I go to Starbucks, don't have my coffee in five minutes. I freak out. Everything's supposed to be fast. God and how he works things out can seem slow, but he's always right on time. Because it's his providence as he molds and moves things together to put things exactly where they're supposed to be. This is why he is trustworthy. This is why we trust our lives in the larger narrative framework of what God is doing. We trust everything into his hands. This is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. It's like you break that cracker. It reminds of us Christ's body that was broken for us. He dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me as a people. Why? Because God remained true and faithful to his promises. Jesus didn't die on a cross outside of God's providence. That This is the place of God's providence and redemption. All the promises that God made, he brought to this point for this specific thing so that we as a people could have what separated us from God and us from one another taken away in the person of Christ. This is the story that makes sense. This is the story that all other stories make sense in light of. It's the story within a story. I think the only way we will get it is when we begin to see our lives underneath God's greater and larger overarching story. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion, like I said. Uh, break that cracker, dip, dip it in the wine of the grape juice, remind you of what Christ did for us. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you. 
Maybe you're in a situation today and you see your life as, as Moab. Or you have these stories you tell yourself, it always happens, it's always this way, nothing's going to get better, this is always how it is. They would love to pray with you about that. To begin to talk about the overarching story of what God does and how he brings hope again. You know, I, part of my job as being a pastor is I'm supposed to help you guys to understand that there is forgiveness and there is grace. And too often people don't feel that forgiveness and grace. I'm here to tell you that in the person of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness and hope and grace. Your life doesn't always have to be the way it's been. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back. Uh, we give because God gave so much to us, giving is part of our worship. There's food in the back. Grab something to eat, meet some other people. Maybe go through some of the questions in the sermon notes with each other. Uh, and maybe ask one another, you know, what, for you, what, what is your Moab? What's the thing that you always feel is inevitable? This week, I was, I was moving, actually, this sign right here. And I stuck my, my finger, and I got a big old splinter. I'm like, this always happens to me. Splinters. <laughs> my wife thought it was funny. I guess you know it. So anyway, uh, but, but that's the thing. I, I have narrations where I tell myself this thing. Oh, this always happens. And it doesn't always happen. It doesn't. We just tell ourselves that. So maybe we can step into each other's lives and remind one another of the goodness of what God has done and how he brings all things together in his narrative because he is the great God who we love and worship and serve because he's good. He is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do ask that you would teach us and remind us who you are, that you have brought us hope and you have brought us healing. And I ask that we begin to see our lives only within the larger narrative of what you have done and continue to do that we would honor you by how we live out our understanding of your providence and grace. And that as we see all that you've done, it would spur us to live our lives out in front of others so they would see that there is hope, that we would bring your healing to this world, that you as our God have come in and partnered with us as your people to take this message of grace and hope everywhere. So teach us as your people to metaphorically begin to spread salt, to be a witness to what you have done, but to also be flavorful. And I ask that as we begin to go through this book of Ruth, that we would see each and every step that you took through this to bring her and all of those people back to you, just like you even do today in our own lives. How you have called us and brought us and shown us who you are. Teach us to live in your goodness, lifting up who you are in all things, because you are the only God. And you have done all things to bring us back into relationship with you. So teach us to live in your hope and grace, day by day by day. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.